the New Testament in its world, with Mike Bird. I would say an author is not a disembodied mind somewhere lurking behind a text that we're trying to find in some sort of weird game of Marco Polo. Welcome to the New Testament in its World, a super series based on the brilliant book by the same name. My name's Mark Hadley, and I'll be leading us through the brain of the author, Dr. Michael Bird, a lecturer in theology at Australia's Ridley College. Now, Mike has written over 30 books in the field of the Septuagint, Historical Jesus, the Gospels, St. Paul, Biblical Theology, and Systematic Theology, which is more than enough to qualify him for this podcast. But first, what we really want to know is uh, what sort of tea were we drinking this morning, Mike? I had a lovely cup of English breakfast tea, Mark. Well, that's high five for both of us because we both started the day with English breakfast. Now, you might wonder why we bother with such a little detail, but the one thing Mike and I do have in common is we're both tea Nazis, and you'll probably learn more about that as the series goes on. But first in hand, we we're going to move to our topic. And Mike, let's begin with how does Christianity differ from most other religions in the world? Well, that's a very good question because... One of the tendencies today is some people want to argue that all religions are basically the same. You know, there's many paths of the mountain, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, it's all pretty much the same thing. But what we have in the world's religions, I think, is not many paths up the mountain, but in fact, very different mountains. And each one should be understood and mapped and surveyed on its own terms with its own terrain, its own intricacies. And if we look distinctly at the Christian mountain, what makes it, I think, unique and or particular is that Jesus is at the top of it. Now, all of the world's religions may have a particular view of Jesus. In Hinduism, Jesus may be a type of expression of a divine reality. In uh, Judaism, Jesus may well be a, a rabbi. In Islam, he's a prophet. But Christians claim he is the Son of God. He is Israel's Messiah, but he is also truly God and truly man who has come to us for our salvation and for the renewal and rescue of creation. So we're looking at different mountains, and the one that Christianity has puts Jesus right at the top of it. So why do we need to know about the historical background of the New Testament? If we know where we're going up the mountain, isn't it just enough to read the Bible? Well, reading the Bible is great. I think it's one of the best books you can read. It's it's uh, God's message to us through the various authors, the various books. It's a venerable library of God's self-communication. But each book has a certain type of particularity. In other words, it was written in a certain genre, in a certain setting, at a certain time, even in a certain language. And if you want to get the most out of your Bible, out of your Bible reading, uh, you need to know a, a little bit of information about the background. So, I mean, you know, whether you're looking at something like, say, oh, I don't know, uh, the Pentateuch or the first five books of Moses, you might want to know something about uh, the Hebrews in Egypt and, and how they went into the land of Canaan and the Exodus journey and the various law codes and the narratives they tell about the ancient Near East. If you're looking at the Gospels, it helps if you know something about first century Galilee and Judea, where they are set. And, and, and that means when you come across a character like a Pharisee, you're not going to think, oh, well, Pharisee is just a paragon or an example of the average 
religious hypocrite. No, it helps you under, if you understand a bit of history. And the Pharisees were a very grassroots campaign who wanted to bring renewal to Israel, who, who wanted to see all of Israel's hopes and promises come to fruition and believe that they, they could do that if Israel would all return to a particular type of Torah observance or, or obeying the Jewish law. They could manufacture the conditions for restoration. So knowing a little bit th of things like that simply adds new dimensions in your study of the Bible. Do you think it's a common thing for people to come and approach the Bible with the same context for every book, uh, just to start at one end and, and try and read through as though it was all the same? I think there is a bit of a tendency to do that, as if, you know, the way you read Genesis um, chapters 1 to 11 is the same way you should read, say, the book of Revelation. Uh, but most people will also realize that these things are a little bit different. I mean, we all know that context matters, that there's a difference from reading a story that begins with uh, once upon a time compared to something like um, scattered showers with a southeasterly breeze. I mean, we, we have an intuition that these things are, are talking about different things in different ways. What I think people struggle with is being able to precisely identify what is the, the exact difference and how that matters. So let me give you an example of something. Uh, we, when we read something like Paul's letter to the Romans, we know we're reading an ancient letter. We know it's written from Paul to a congregation you know, in Rome, or, or there could be people in Corinth or Philippi. But when we read something like a parable of Jesus, we're aware that it's a symbolic story and there's different things going on and the different characters represent different things. And it's a little bit harder trying to figure out, well, who corresponds to what? And if you know a little bit about background, if you know a little bit about things like absentee uh, landlords, if you know a little bit about uh, agrarian culture in the first century, uh, things can suddenly make a lot more sense. So making sense of it, I guess, is what we're aiming for. Uh, do we have anything to be afraid of, though, as Christians? Uh, I guess when we're dealing with history, do we sometimes feel like, uh, you know, the Bible is not the same sort of history as the history you find in history books, that in fact, actually, we've got a lot of supernatural stuff we'd rather keep hushed up? Or is it actually real history we're dealing with? Yeah, well, there, there's a debate on that. You know, can you appeal to God or the miraculous as a, as a factor when you're talking about history? Or does history have to be a kind of secular God-free zone where you don't make recourse to the supernatural. When it comes to doing history, an emerging problem we have to wrestle with is that since the Enlightenment, what counts as history has been very much conditioned by purported laws that have no place for God and what has been come to be called the supernatural. In earlier times, the supernatural was an extra dimension that enhanced the natural world, not an alternative to it. Consequently, many historians are quite happy to write off God and the description of his actions as the mystic husk that must be peeled away so that the historical kernel behind Christian origins can finally be exposed. Uh, my view is I think you just keep an open mind and you think, you know, look, if we live in an open universe, if, if it's possible there is a God who interacts with this world, then I think it is, you know, 
possible that God does these things. He, he, he does come to his people. Uh, he does lead them out of slavery. He does raise his son from the dead. Now, I know that raises a whole host of questions, uh, but I, I simply believe, you know, you follow the evidence where it goes. In, in the case of Jesus' resurrection, I, I do think on, on the balance of evidence, it's, it's far, far more likely that he really did rise from the dead because his tomb was found empty. The disciples proclaimed his resurrection. Uh, there was a bunch of things they could have said. I mean, they could have said he'd ascend into heaven or he'd turn into an angel, but they kept saying, no, he, he's risen from the dead. And so, yeah, on, on the balance of probabilities, I, th I think Jesus did rise from the dead. The other thing when it comes to historical backgrounds is, yes, it can be a little bit intimidating because you've got all this Roman history. I mean, you could you could look at the various biographies of the Roman emperors. You could look at things like um, uh, the very famous writings of Homer and Herodotus. And, and, and in one sense, they are very useful for understanding the ancient world of the first century, this you know, interface of Greek, Roman, and Jewish culture. And then you've got these other big body of works like the Dead Sea Scrolls or the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus or the Jewish philosopher Philo. And there's so much material uh, that you could spend time working through. And a lot of it uh, really is useful. And I mean, one good exercise I encourage people to do, is if you ever get a chance, have a read through the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, you can pick a paperback up at your local bookstore for about 10 or $15. And as you read through it, it'll seem very strange, very bizarre, because these are the collected writings of a particular sectarian group who was basically down by the Dead Sea on the east side of uh, Jerusalem. Um, and they've got all these like rules for their community, these various commentaries, um, various um, uh, non-biblical writings uh, about figures like Melchizedek. And some of it will be very obscure and weird. But every now and again, you'll come across something that goes, ah, that sounds like one of the Psalms. Or, wow, that's very similar to what Paul says. Or, mm, that's interesting because Jesus spoke in a similar way. And it helps you uh, understand how the writings of the New Testament from the leading figures, you know, Jesus, Paul, and the other apostles, they're very much earthed in the, in the world of, of Greek culture, Roman politics, and the, the Jewish environment of the first century. Let me challenge this a little bit, though. I mean, when we read something like Aesop's Fables, we can pick up that there's historical facts involved, that, you know, people cross rivers with bridges, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there are trolls underneath them. What do you do with the historicity of things like miracles and Balaam's ass chatting to him on a road to meet with the rest of the Israelites? Oh, that, that's a good question. Well, it comes down to whether you believe that there is a God who can interact and intervene and do things in this world. Uh, if you believe that's just not possible, well, then that's one way of shutting down the conversation. Um, another thing to, to, to look at is, is, is that the, the early disciples believe this stuff happened. And we shouldn't have the view that everyone back then was kind of, you know, pre-scientific, hopelessly naive and in, entirely superstitious. I mean, there was a fair bit of skepticism in the ancient world. Uh, and, and they certainly knew the difference between an account of history uh, with things purported to have happened and accounts of history where they suspected someone was, was making stuff, stuff up or embellishing the details. And the impression I get from the New Testament authors, it, it's sometimes, you know, particularly like Luke, and when he's running the resurrection story, you get the impression Luke is saying, look, I know this sounds weird. I know this 
is really peculiar. I know dead people don't normally come back to life, but by gosh, that's what the apostles said they saw. I've got to say that history is starting to sound a lot more complicated <laughs> and, and sort of, uh, I guess, with shades than what I actually first anticipated. Uh, to be honest, Mike, I thought history was a series of facts inside a book. Does it actually get more complicated than that? Oh, it does. It does, because you've got to remember that every every aspect of history has some degree of bias. Now, that bias begins in our very sources. So, I mean, in, to, to a degree, so let's say, uh, say someone like the, the evangelist Matthew, um, he does tell the story of Jesus, and I think it's a way that's that's accurate, you know, uh, true, and reflects the, the stories of Jesus that were circulating in the early church in which the evangelists have collected and incorporated, some of it some of it based on, I believe, an eyewitnesses themselves. But he's also writing at a particular period when there's a lot of argy-bargy uh, between um, the, this new you know, Christ-believing community and other Jewish communities around the same time. And remember, Matthew is probably writing after 70 AD, after there's been a big Judean rebellion against Rome and the Romans have come in and they've completely destroyed the Jewish temple. So this is a kind of a reconstruction phase for Judaism. There seems to be these two competing groups of like the um, uh, sort of the heirs of the Pharisees in the post-70 era, era and this new Christian movement that's that's begun in a, as a very Jewish movement, but now it's having a lot more Gentile adherents who are coming to faith in Christ. And Matthew's writing his gospel at that time, trying to hold on to the old, you know, that that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel, but also recognizing that this, uh, this new religious movement is quickly attracting lots of adherents amongst the Gentiles, and they're getting a little bit of, um, shall we call it, um, in-house family smack talk from their fellow Jewish <laughs> authors. And so and so he, he's, he's writing the story of Jesus from his own experience. And, and one thing we have to say is every story um, doesn't just tell you a story. Every story tells you something about the storyteller itself. So Matthew writes in his way, and, and you get a few clues what, where, where Matthew is, and he seems to have a particular em- emphasis on Syria. So people wonder, well, maybe Matthew was in Syria when he wrote his gospel. He's very big on the fulfillment, very big on Jesus as a new Moses, on the son of David, the true heir of all of Judaism's hopes and promises and aspirations. And the Pharisees are particularly singled out um, for treatment. And uh, it's not just because Jesus, I think, caught beef with the Pharisees. I think he definitely did. There were two competing renewal movements. But I think that also reflects something of Matthew's own day as well. And so you've got you've got the 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 particularity or something you might even call it the biasy of the sources, but then you've got the own interpreters. And one thing I know is when um, a lot of interpreters want to interpret Matthew, they often interpret Matthew as if he's really the apostle Paul. And you get people interpreting um, parts of Matthew's gospel, uh, not so much in its own terms, but as if they as if they think Matthew is just kind of um Paul speaking Yiddish. Or something like that, <laughs> and 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 you can see that. And uh, I've heard some people do things with parts of Matthew. Think, well, that would make a lot of sense if you were talking about Romans, but I don't think that's what Matthew is getting at. And so, uh, when it comes to doing history, you've got to remember there are there are kind of biases or you know particular perspectives in our sources, and we also find that in modern interpreters today. I guess I'll give you one, one good way, though, that this flips into, I think, a good perspective, is if you read something like the Book of Revelation, people think the Book of Revelation is largely about a map of the end times and, you know, 
the return of Jesus and, you know, which American politician is the Antichrist. And, I mean, at one level, it, it does have a forward-looking aspect. But the reason why I find the book of Revelation so interesting and so fascinating is it, it is it is about the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It's about the Roman Empire as seen from the perspective of those who have the empire's boot on its throat. Normally, we get Roman history told about the Romans, you know, telling us how how wonderfully and triumphantly they've they've liberated the peoples of of Illyrium or Armenia or Egypt, and we brought Roman peace, we brought civilization, we brought Roman laws, and and we neglect to mention we brought Roman spears and Roman crucifixion. Yeah. Well, the, when the Romans conquered a place, they either killed everyone, enslaved everyone, they then put in in place and in, in power a bunch of local elites who are sucking up to them, who would literally worship them, who would build temples to the, the goddess of, of Rome and the Roman emperor, and they would ingratiate themselves to imperial elites. So when you got with, so with the Romans, the deal was you can be killed by them, enslaved by them, or you worship them. And the, the, the John of Patmos, who's writing his revelation, he's showing us what the what Rome looks like from those who are on the side of the oppressed. And it's not the the great and glorious Rome and this wonderful empire they've built that you would find somewhere like Suetonius or Tacitus or the or the history Augusta or or, or, or Cassius Dio. Now he he tells another story. Uh, one of, of of oppression, one of idolatry, one of evil, and one of greed. And he shows what the empire looks like from those who are on the other side of the history book. And he brings his own unique perspective that is very different from what you might find from like a Julius Caesar talking about his, you know, Gaelic wars. So, and that's where his own unique perspective, I think, gives us a, a, a real real insight into what the Roman Empire was like for some citizens who were not part of the elite class and culture. Okay, so perspective is the key word here, and that's the one that's going to worry me a little bit, to be honest, because we live in a postmodern world, or some would say a post-postmodern world. Uh, how lucky are we going to be to even understand what the perspective of the author was? How close can we actually get to what it is that they were intending to say in the first place? Or does all this interpretation and such get in the way? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that's a, a subject called hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation. And some people say, well, look, how can you possibly know what an author went or was thinking when he wrote a text or a letter or a book? You know, the author is so remote um, he speaks a different language or she speaks, uh, lives in a different culture. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's so different and, and the things they've embedded in the text are so ambiguous and all readers have different responses to various texts. So maybe we can dispense with the author. Maybe we should just focus on the text or just focus on our own responses to the text as, as a way of, of making sense of things. Uh, what, what I tend to say that, um, that might be very good if you're reading poetry, but I promise you nobody reads a, um, uh, a prescription from your doctor for some medicines in a kind of reader response way. Like nobody offers an, an evangelical eco-Estonian reading of, you know, um, uh, take two tablets three times a day after meals. I mean, you know, pe people tend to read for authorial intent. 
uh, in certain occasions. And I would say an author is not a disembodied mind somewhere lurking behind a text that we're trying to find in some sort of weird game of Marco Polo. An author is a, uh, a communicative agent who is embedding in the text a communicative action and which, because we understand the symbols and signs of language and some sort of analogy of shared experience, we're able to make sense of. Uh, yes, uh, not all texts are equally clear. There are, there are some things that are a little bit ambiguous. You know, there's some things in the New Testament I, I still scratch my head about. You know, what's with the what's the deal with wearing veils in Corinth or um, what does it mean to be for women to be saved from through childbirth in the pastoral letters? Or who was the young man who fled the Garden of Gethsemane naked? You know, that type of thing. But generally, uh, we uh, through what an author imprints of himself or herself in the text and that an analogy of experience, we normally can have a fair crack at understanding what they're saying. And it also helps that we can discuss with other readers, you know, whether in your Bible study group, within your church, or, you know, within like a, a, an academy, a group of scholars reading together, we can come our own way and reach our own conclusions together as to what we think an author is saying and doing. Okay, so we can get at what their intention is, uh, and it sounds like we can read it in a way in which we'll actually access their meaning. But history tends to be written by the victors, right? So if they, in fact, actually have uh, their own perspective on what should be communicated, how do we know that we're going to be able to trust what they have to say? Well, that's, 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 a, that's a good question. Uh, one of the things you, you can do is say, okay, well, this, we know this author has a bias, okay? This author has a particular axe to grind or they have a, they, they have a particular location when they're writing out of. Now, if you can roughly identify that, um, or have like some sort of inkling that's where they're coming from, then that, that's one step of the way. I mean, the task of the critical reader is to accept the story in its own terms, but be aware that the storyteller is embedding something of their own perspective or particularity in the way they tell that. So let, let me give you a good example. Let's say you're reading the book of Acts. Uh, this is written by uh, Luke. Now, Luke, on the one hand, I think is giving a, a pretty good picture of how the early church um uh, emerged, you know, from uh, from the earliest days in Pentecost in Jerusalem, and then how it spreads into Syria and and Asia Minor, Greece, and then eventually the Apostle Paul goes goes all the way to Rome. And Luke is trying to do certain things. I think he's trying to exonerate um, the early Christian movement, saying, "Look, they're they're not a bunch of rabble rousers. They're not really a threat to Roman justice." And oh, by the way, Roman justice is not their just because most of the Roman officials in the Book of Acts are portrayed as either morally indifferent, corrupt, or incompetent. And Luke does go out of his way to exonerate uh, the Christians from the various charges being labelled against them, possibly from Jewish communities or possibly from Roman officials. So he does have that kind of that axe or that angle he's got. But at the same time, uh, he's also one of our best historians for, the, uh, the Mediter for life in the Eastern Mediterranean, in the uh, mid to late first century, and most uh, historians of of, of Greco-Roman culture have usually acknowledged that Luke is a historian of the first rank, um, even with his own particular angle or his own perspective that he's that he's pressing or, or drawing upon. I get that he's actually got a perspective that we can get to, but the Christian church was basically dominant in the New Testament, wasn't it, in New Testament times? So why would um, we expect it to write anything bad about itself? 
Well, the funny thing is, though, these the authors actually do. I mean, Luke tries to present the picture of the church as almost an idealized community. You know, they've got all these good things happening. They, you know, that the sharing of goods. They're of he likes saying, and the church was of one mind, and they were all agreed. But he also adds a few. He adds a bit of grit for the gravy. You know, he he also <laughs> tells us about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. He talks about the division between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. He talks about the bust up between um, uh, Paul and Barnabas with John Mark. Um, and, and I think Luke would accept that Paul was a character who was at times needlessly inflammatory and uh, often uh, caused more fires than necessarily need to be started. So although he's clearly uh, has a bias, uh, he doesn't whitewash uh, the story of Christiania. I don't think it's hagiography, just saying, oh, well, how, how great was the wonderful church back then? Uh, Luke knows very well um, that the church was a new thing, a God thing, but there, it, it was a picture that he painted, I think, warts and all. Okay. Well, if there was one thing that you'd like people to take away from your book about the historicity of the New Testament, what would it be? Oh, I mean, number one thing I'd have to say is uh, Jesus definitely existed, okay? Uh, there, there is a small cohort of, um, a of groups of atheists who really do like pressing this idea that the whole New Testament is just myth and uh, Jesus was just a mythical creature, um, you know, the same way you might think of someone like Hercules or something like that. Uh, and here's the thing. Uh, I, I sit on the editorial board for a journal, an academic journal, called the Journal for the Study of the Historical Jesus. And we, we, we are very, very diverse. We've got Christians of all types, you know, progressive, evangelical. We've got people who are, you know, ex-Christians, uh, people who are atheists, agnostics. We've got a couple of Jewish scholars on the board. And, and we disagree about everything about Jesus. We disagree, you know, what did Jesus mean by the kingdom, kingdom of God? You know, a certain dates, um, you know, or about um, the, the growth of the early church. But the two things that we all agree on, Jesus definitely existed. And people who deny his existence uh, are a bit like climate change deniers a kind of um, hysterical anti-intellectual movement that we just scratch our head as to why this thing keeps persisting. And if there are any atheists out there, I want you to know that this may sound very real, but even if ex Jesus existed, you can still be an atheist. But don't be an atheist who's basing it on a particular view of Jesus' mythicism, uh, a view that seems to come up every now and again and keeps getting um, uh, debunked but there, but so I would say, uh, d don't listen to the extreme, almost conspiracy-laden skeptics. Uh, we'd have a historical Jesus who explains the beginning of the historical church. Mate, that's awesome, and thanks very much for talking us through why we do need to know about the historical background. Uh, in fact, actually, if you'd like some more notes about sections of the book which we can point you to, you'll find those in the show notes for this episode. Next episode, not only do we find out about what sort of tea Michael will be drinking then, but we also find out about who was Jesus. So it's a nice pickup on our last question based on the New Testament in its world. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to chatting to you then. You've been listening to the Eternity Podcast Network, eternitypodcasts.com.au.